Well, it is so good to see you here this morning, and uh, I think you'll join me in recognizing this. It's, it's good to see everybody every Sunday, but it's especially good to see a couple people on particular Sundays. And uh, if you have been here for a while, you know that it's been a while since we've had the pleasure of having Bob and Jerry Allen in worship with us. And so I saw you sneak in the back. We're so glad to have you. I know they had a, a big family reunion last weekend, and so that was a great thing. I've got a question for you. Have you ever evaluated something poorly? You ever, you ever thought something about something or someone, and then come to maybe find out that that gut reaction, that initial assessment that you made, wasn't entirely accurate. That happens all the time, doesn't it? You get surprised by a friendship. Um, you, you hear a recommendation, you go, oh, that's not for me. And then you find out, hey, yeah, it actually was. I want to tell you a story about kind of a, an evaluation that our, our family did when we started our, our capital campaign here at the church a couple years ago. Uh, we decided that there are just some things that we're going to give up as a family. And one of those was cable television. Um, one of the things that frustrated me is, number one, we didn't watch a ton of television. But number two, we only watched about five channels, but I had to pay for about 150 of them. And um, it, it was, I'm not embarrassed to say, it wasn't the biggest package, it wasn't the lowest package, it was like the second lowest. And it, it cost us about $150 a month. And we just went, God could use that $150 much better for building His church than for entertainment options that I don't even use. And I thought, how in the world am I going to explain to my kids that we're, we're cutting the cable? You know, our, they might, your kids or your grandkids might not be able to live with their cell phones. They'll be okay. They would, really. But you have to, you think about telling your kids, we're just not going to have cable television anymore. Now, we, we have Amazon and we have Netflix, but those are like five bucks a month. And uh, what we came to find out was, we don't, we don't miss it. We probably watch less than three hours of television a week anyways. And we watch movies, and we enjoy that. But there's this, there's this way that the world will shape you that if you don't have the latest phone, you're missing out. No, as a matter of fact, I've actually considered going back to a dumb phone because I, like, I don't like a phone that talks back to me. Um, that's kind of odd. And uh, the world will tell you... I've, I've had people call me and say, hey, we'll give you... $200 and our grandson's kidney if you'll come back to cable. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not interested. Would you like a new car? I don't want cable. Leave me alone. And they, they just don't understand for the life of them how you could live your life without this, this package that's going to make everything better. Have you experienced that? And I'm here to tell you on the front end, I thought, wow, things are really going to be boring at the Davis household. You know what we do? We play more board games together. We exercise more together. We get out and walk through our neighborhood more because we don't have this one-eyed monster, number one, costing us $150 a month and occupying our time. I, I evaluated that it would be hard. It would be something that we would miss. <clears throat> and here, a year and a half, almost two years into it, we don't miss it at all. And my point in telling you this story is when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, he says that the same thing happens with us with our priorities. We sometimes get things 
out of order. You, you no doubt have seen the, um, the illustration where a guy has a big, a, a wide-mouthed glass jar, and he's got um, big rocks, and he's got medium-sized rocks, and he's got little rocks, all in these three containers. And his job is to get all of those into the jar, every single one of them. He's got to empty all three of these containers into this jar. And so he begins by putting the little rocks in first and then the medium-sized rocks. And by the time he does it, he can't, he can't get all of the big rocks in. But if he changes his priority of how he puts things in that jar and puts the big rocks in first, and then he puts the medium-sized rocks. The medium-sized rocks kind of filter down through the cracks, and they fill it up. And then the last thing is he takes the little kind of ground-up little baby rocks, and he pours those in, and they filter all the way through. And just by changing the order that he put things into the jar, he fits everything in. It's an issue of priority, not, not do they all fit. Well, it depends on, it depends on how you start. If you don't start right, you're not going to be able to get them all in. And this morning... Uh, Solomon wants to talk about, and it's strange because Solomon is one of the wealthiest men in all the world. He wants to talk about the meaninglessness of money. And I think you hear that, and immediately we, we start to get defensive. But listen, money didn't create you, and money is not going to judge you. And money did not die on the cross for you. And so for us to kind of admit this morning, yes, maybe me have been so, inf- maybe myself, I've been so influenced by consumerism that I think that I can't live with things that I need. And that's not exactly what, what is true. What, what is true is you can make it with a lot of stuff, and you'll find out maybe a year or two down the road, you don't even miss it. Now, one of the things that happens in this passage, we're, we're kind of in the middle of two passages. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, verse 8, and go through chapter 6, verse 9. And the reason we're doing that is, is every Bible scholar is convinced that Solomon is making use of a poetic structure here. And I, I have to explain this a little bit. It's called a chiasm is the term that is used. And so if you look at your outline, you'll see on your outline that um, the Scripture passages for each of the points, it's the front and the end, and then it's the kind of the middle and the middle, and then it's the exact middle. What they do is they start with, I think the first couple of verses are 5, 8 through 12, and then uh, 6... Tell me what it is, Miss Ellen. Seven through nine. So it's the, the outside. That's the ground floor. That's the first point that he makes. So at the beginning of 5, 8, and at the end of, of the, the section in chapter 6, it's the same point. Then he steps it up a notch. He gets up on a step, and he picks up right where he leaves off, and he goes 5, 13 through 17, and then he goes 6, 1 through 6, and that's his second point. It, it, he says it in chapter 5. He says it again in chapter 6 in a different way, and then he gets to his main point. And his main point is chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And so he, he kind of says something in, in, uh, at the beginning of 5, and then uh, later on in 5, and then 5, 18 through 20, and then he kind of steps it down and steps it down, and he says the same thing and frames it. So one of the things that you'll see is we're, we're, we're dealing with a poetic structure where po- Solomon is trying to drive home a particular point about money. And here's what he says. Our first point, he says that money-loving If you are a lover of money, money money-loving produces sad people who are never satisfied. If you love money, you will be terribly disappointed, and you'll be sad because you'll never be satisfied. Listen to what the Scriptures say. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, and then chapter 6, 7 through 9. He talks about a really sad situation beginning in verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province... 
Don't be astonished at the situation because, listen to what he says. Why, why don't be astonished? Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all of them and the king is served by the field. He says, listen, you're going to be extorted by government. It's just going to happen. And, and government officials are going to protect government officials and the government officials above them are going to give them a free pass to do it. He says, it just happens. Verse 10, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What, then, is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Look down at verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. All man's labor is for his stomach, and yet he gets hungry again. The appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there to the poor person who knows uh, how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. He gives three reasons. He gives three reasons why we will be sad if we are a lover of money. And the first thing that he says is that like your stomach, the lover of money will never be satisfied. Like your stomach, the lover of money will never be satisfied. He says blatantly in verse 10, the one who loves money is never satisfied. The one who loves wealth uh, is never satisfied with income. And then he makes this analogy. He says, you work for food. And what happens the minute you fill your stomach? It depends on what you eat. If it's Chinese food, you're hungry in like two hours again. You know, I mean, that, it doesn't fill you up at all. You're ready to go. You never perpetually satisfy your appetite. You know, as soon as you fill the stomach up, you're going to have to fill it up again. And the same is true with money. Uh, Norman Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, the next dollar. The next dollar. Because there's always a next dollar. And so this doesn't have anything to do with what tax bracket you find yourself in. This has to do with your heart disposition towards money. And if you are a lover of money, just know that one of the necessary consequences of loving money is, is being a sad individual because you'll never be satisfied. You're not supposed to find your satis satisfaction in your income. You're supposed to find your satisfaction in God. In 5.11, he says something that's, that's really not nice, but it's something we have to, to recognize. <clears throat> Basically, he says this, and this is my paraphrase. You'll realize, if you are a lover of money, you will realize you're not the only money lover as the leeches emerge. The leeches. Now, who are the leeches? All the people show up when you got money. He says it in verse 11. Look at chapter 5. 11, when good things increase, when you get money, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? He says, when you win the lottery, you're going to find out you got a lot of relatives you didn't know about. You get, an, uh, you get money from an inheritance, you're going to find a lot of people that want to be your friend all of a sudden. And, and it's a terrible story, but if you, if you, if you enjoy professional sports, and, and I know men and women here who enjoy professional sports, you will hear stories of people who have been superstars who uh, retire at 35, multimillionaires, 
And by the time they're 45, they are broke. They're bankrupt. Why? Because they, they were not wise with their money, but almost all of them will tell stories of, well, I had a cousin, and I had a second cousin, and my third cousin's hamster needed a, needed a loan, and the money never came back, and I gave money to this person. He's saying that when you have money, the, the only thing you can do with your money when you get it is, is say bye-bye to it and watch it go away because you're going to waste it and everyone else is going to feel entitled to it. He asks NFL superstar quarterback, what gain came from all of that money that you had? You could have you saved uh, you could have made a plan, but instead, it's gone. You'll be sad because money never satisfies. Thirdly, he says this in verses uh, 8 and 9 and 12. He says, your sleep will be ruined because you have so much to worry about. What are you going to worry about if you've got money? Don't, isn't there a temptation to think, if you just had a little more, all your worries would go away? Right? No, you'll have more to worry about. You'll have an extra car to maintain and to put gas in. You'll, there'll be uh, more property to maintain. You'll be worried. And this is something really interesting here. He says that the poor actually kind of have it good and bad. He, he says in verse, uh, is it 9? Oh, where did it go? Verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats much or little, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. It says that the poor actually have it kind of good and bad. Number one, they have it good because they can sleep. They've worked hard, they've done an honest day's work, and they don't have a whole lot to worry about. So when they put their head on their pillow, they go to sleep. Now, what, they have it bad because what we read in verse 8 and 9, there's oppression uh, instituted from the government where they are extorted and the officials are protected. So they've got it good, they sleep well, but they are oppressed and they suffer from injustice. But the rich, they've got all kinds of things to worry about. Their, their sleep is oppressed with their worries. They've got to worry about the next deal. All right, this, this went well this week. What's the next deal? What's the next, what's the next thing that I need to work? What did those leeches take away? Do I, is my car still in the driveway or did my kid just take off with that? What, what's there? Uh, what, what's happening with my investments? Let me, let me check the ticker tape of my, my stocks to find out if I'm still worth as much. What if a recession happens? You know, am I, am I safe from a recession? What happens, to my, what happens to my wealth if something like that happens? And the truth here, while, while riches may be a um, more special um, temptation for the rich, Greediness? Greediness is not uh, assuaged at all. Greed is not decreased either by surplus or by shortage. You don't have much. Doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not going to be greedy. There's a lot of poor people just waiting for that, that next thing. They want something else. And there's a lot of rich people. They have everything, and they're still waiting for the next thing. So it's not an issue of whether you have a surplus or whether you have a shortage. Money will never satisfy the way you think it will. And you want to know how? Take a snapshot of your life 10 years ago. 10 years ago. And you thought 10 years ago that the money you made 10 years ago was a lot of money at one time. 10 years down the road, you don't think it's a lot of money anymore. 
well, there's inflation, you got to calculate all of this. No, 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 no. There was a time when you thought what you made, especially right after you got that raise, you thought, man, this is great. I'm not ever going to need a raise ever again. And yet, given enough time, you go, man, that's, that's not enough. There's this insatiable greediness. And we're, we're, we're trying to find our satisfaction in something that was never designed to give us satisfaction. The problem isn't wealth. The problem is the insatiability of the love of money. It is an appetite that will never give away, get, go away. Someone once said that the green that greed gives will never gratify. There's a lot of truth to that. You, you can love that green, and you can enjoy it for a moment, but it will never, ever gratify you. And his second point, he, he goes on uh, even more to say, listen, it's not just about the love of money that's going to leave you sad because you'll never be satisfied. He says money-loving makes people mad because riches are a bad investment. Riches are a bad investment. Now you go, well, that sounds like an oxymoron. You invest to get more money and it works out. Now again, he's dealing with this root of having this um, inordinate desire for riches. And if you have that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Listen again to the scriptures. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. There's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his own harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more... He eats in darkness all of his days with much sorrow and sickness and anger. Look down at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Here's a tragedy, uh, same kind of way to start it off. Here's a tragedy I've observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, and no matter how long he lives, he is not satisfied by good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for he comes in futility and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it is more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. He talks about a man who God has blessed with, uh, there's a whole list of things. He's given long life, he's given a great progeny, and he's given incredible wealth. Yet he so focuses on the gifts that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't enjoy them. He hoards them. And listen, there are, again, we don't have cable, so we don't watch these shows, but there's TV shows out there about people who hoard stuff. Like you open up the door to their house and it looks like your worst closet on steroids. Think about your worst closet stacked up and the, the proverbial stuff pouring out. There are people that their entire house looks like that. That would drive me crazy. That would drive me crazy. I'm OCD. I got to organize stuff. It'd be a never-ending job for me in that house. But he's saying that if you hoard stuff, you're actually going to hurt yourself. And he says that you're going to hurt yourself in three ways. 
What are three ways that you'll hurt yourself by hoarding? Number one, he says that money can be irretrievably lost. Lost. Money can be lost. Now, it could be a bad business venture. Um, it could be a bad loan to a friend. You ever, made a, you ever made a loan to a friend and, you know, hey, I'm going I'm to I'm pay you back. And then something happens and it doesn't happen. Now, what happens to the friendship? Well, things might be a little strained, depending on kind of who you are and who they are. It happens. It, it could be a bad um, investment monetarily. Jesus tells a story about a, a, a lady who loses a coin. What she do? She turns the house upside down looking for it. Have you ever misplaced your wallet? That's not a fun experience, is it? You're thinking credit cards. I don't even know the numbers for all the people to call to cancel my credit cards. And I got to get a new driver's license. And I got all this kind of stuff. And you flip out for a few minutes until you just realize you left it on the, the counter in the bathroom. You know, it, just, it wasn't where you normally put it. He says it can, it can be hurt because it can be lost. And in, when you are loving money, the reward that you will get for money is worry and anxiety. Congratulations, Mr. Moneybags. You have more to worry about and be anxious, uh, anxious over. He talks specifically about a man who uh, had a really sour, uh, an investment go south, and now he has a kid and he's got nothing to pass on. Number two, beyond money being lost, he says that money dissolves at death. <clears throat> money dissolves at death. It doesn't, it doesn't dissolve. It just doesn't do you any good. You cannot take it with you. It gets left behind. And so here's the truth about money. You may not lose it in a recession. You will lose it at death. You will. One of the things that I think is interesting, it it just happens that six months ago, this was the passage we were going to preach on on this day. And one of the things we're talking about this morning, you heard Reed announce it, is a um, little brochure on a legacy fund. How do you, in death, prove to your friends, your neighbors, and your children what your priorities were in life? Most people, when they die, don't think about giving a gift to the church. Uh, and it's not just that. It's, um, it, it's an opportunity to find ways to make uh, your money live on and validate your priorities in life and make a statement when your estate is settled to say, these were my priorities. My family, my church, other civic organizations. Then he's saying that it, it, it doesn't go with you. You will lose it at death. And you have an opportunity, perhaps, to make a statement uh, in your will and in your estate planning about what your priorities were in life. In chapter 5, verse 17, and all through that beginning part of chapter 6, he says, you'll be miserable. Despite the many gifts that you have, you will be joyless. He says God gives this man all of these gifts, yet God does not allow him to enjoy them. Why does God not allow them to enjoy him? Because he loves the gifts more than the giver. He's got all this stuff, but there is no joy. It talks about darkness all this time. He, he eats in darkness. His name is in darkness. He comes from darkness. He goes to darkness. Darkness is not a good uh, symbol here. When he talks about eating in darkness, eating in the Old Testament is a sign of fellowship. You have fellowship with people that you dine with, that you break bread with. And yet this man is so worried about losing whatever he has that he eats in darkness. He has all these things to enjoy, wealth, long life, kids, and he doesn't do it. And he says in a really shocking way that a life without enjoyment 
is worse than no life at all. He says that a child that's not born is better off than a man who has so messed up his priorities that he can't enjoy what God has given. There are people who are so busy looking for a big payday that they completely miss God's everyday graces. Isn't that a tragedy? You are so busy looking for the big blessing that God sprinkles along the pathway of life all of these little charming little gifts that he gives. It's like Craig Troviger with candy for the kids on Sunday morning. You know, it's not a big gift. All it is is a little something. But when that kid gets that candy, listen, Mr. Craig becomes like honorary grandpa, you know. They love him. Why? Because he just sprinkles a little bitty candy along the pathway of uh, somebody who's following after him. And God does the same thing, and yet we're so busy looking for the big thing that we miss it. And the, the truth is this, and I, I, think it is, I think this is more important for people in our culture than, than perhaps for other cultures because we have access to so much that the American dream will become a theological nightmare if we so surround ourselves by stuff and we never learn to simply enjoy our good and giving God. There is a real danger of loving the gift more than the God who gives them. Additionally, why should God give you anything else if you don't enjoy what He's already given you? Why? The wicked, it has been said, begin their hell in this life. And oftentimes that hell begins with a lot of money, a lot of worries. So what's his point in all this? Where does he really get to? Well, in verses 18 through 20, he gets to his big point. He gets to the thing that he really wants to emphasize. And he says this, that God lovers experience true contentment because they have found a true treasure. I love the way that it says this in verses 18 through 20. It's not the first time that we've heard this in Ecclesiastes, but listen to what he says. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life that God has given him, because that is his reward. God has also given riches and wealth to every man, and he has allowed him to enjoy them, to take his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life, because God has kept him occupied with the joy of his heart. Do you hear how this, this passage drips with the language of reward and enjoyment and joy. People think the Old Testament's this really dour, you know, sour, uh, dusty old book. And yet here you see, here's, here's what is good and here's to, to enjoy this and to receive this reward and to uh, delight in these things. There's this language of just incredible enjoyment, joy, and overflowing satisfaction which is interesting because it provides a stark contrast with the people who are over here worried and anxious about their riches. They're worried about what they're going to lose. They're worried about, if I give you too much, there's less for me to have. And yet these people over here are just basking in God's graciousness and enjoying His gifts and giving stuff away because it says, listen, let's just talk about it. Our days are few. Our days are few. It says, God has given us a few days, and yet it says, I love the way it ends. It says, this is a gift of God, for man does not often consider the days of his life. 
We don't, we don't get depressed because life is so short. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. For those who are following God, life is full. It's not short. It's, it's full. It's filled with meaning. We don't have worry, worries and anxiety because we're centered in God and we're loving the gifts that he has given. And we've learned to enjoy the simple things in life. This is a constant refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Fretting over your wealth is a terrible investment, but enjoying God's gifts is the wisest investment that you can make. And the reason for that is this. Wealth is given by God to be a blessing, not to be an idol. Not to be an idol. And yet, isn't there in our own life a really thin line between enjoying what God has given in, in making money an idol in our life? I, I, had, I, had someone, I had someone make a joke to me this morning when they saw the sermon title. They said, well, money's meaningless. I guess I can keep it in my pocket. I, I would expect that and anticipate that. But if money is meaningless, you prove that it's meaningless by what you give away, not what you keep for yourself. It's a chance to worship God and to show that we enjoy Him and we're not hoarding things for ourselves. And the Bible says this, what you have, where you are, and your, even your ability to enjoy what God has given you, guess what? That's a gift from God. Your ability to enjoy what you have and where you are is given from God. And our hearts are made to be filled with gratitude and focus on God. And then we can enjoy stuff because there is no amount of money that can take His place. Now, it's true. The Bible says our, our days are, are few, uh, 70, 80 years if you're perhaps lucky. There's nothing you can do to change the length of your days, but there is a lot that you can do to improve the quality of your time. You cannot change the length of your days. The Bible says, listen, who, by worrying, can add 15 minutes to his life? If you worry, you'll probably shorten your life, not lengthen it. So if you can't, change the length of your days how do you improve the quality of your time you do that by focusing on what's the most important so let me conclude with just a couple cross references that i think make really clear that jesus is supposed to be the lord of our life and not our wallets not our 401k not our savings account proverbs chapter 15 verses 16 and 17 better a little with the fear of the Lord, than great treasure with turmoil. If, you, if, if today you had the opportunity to wor- walk out of here with tons of money, but you lost the Lord, would you take the deal? Now, how many of you want to be poor? I don't see any hands. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 6. We looked at this just a couple of weeks ago. Better one handful with rest than two fistfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. Let's listen to what the Lord Himself has to say. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve, uh, no one can be a slave to two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. 
Now, it may be offensive for you to think of the word slaves associated with your relationship with God, but you are bound to Him if you're a believer. You are faithful to Him. And you cannot be faithful to Him and faithful to your pocketbook in the same way and at the same time. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You see, it's only those who have trusted Christ who can sing with the faithful that verse from that beloved song, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou art mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure, my treasure, thou art. Can you sing that this morning? That Christ is your treasure. Because if you hear this sermon on the meaninglessness of money and you don't know Christ, these words sound like utter foolishness to you. But for those who have found Christ and the grace and the gifts that He gives and the blessing that just comes from being in His presence, we know that He is worth everything. And I pray today that you know Him as well. And if you don't, today would be a wonderful time to have a conversation about what it means to turn your life over to Christ. Would you pray with me, please?